0: You can't expect everybody to be a superhero. Not everybody's gonna be the first person in line at every march, you know? Not everyone's gonna get involved on every single issue, but you can hope to bring people along from where they are at the moment to somewhere better, you know, in the future.
1: Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world, with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the courageous conversation. Because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. All right. So good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Kiva. Welcome everyone to our race to social justice podcast series. I am Kiva White, the black guy, as you can see. And I'm John Kepler. I'm the white guy.
2: And Kiva. Yes, Nashair- it- Share a love of the letter K, K for Kiva, K for Kepner, but more importantly, K for knowledge, what we try to impart during our podcast.
1: Yes. Something and, you that, know, uh,
2: you call the K factor,
1: right? Yes, yes, absolutely. The K factor, the knowledge factor. And we get a lot of knowledge from our guests here uh, each and every time we do these podcasts. And they're really uh, intended to promote social and racial just, justice and equity through sometimes often honest and difficult dialogue, which me and John have uh, coined as courageous conversations. And over the years, John and I have found that our discussions with each other, other have deepened our respective understandings of racism and a wide range of other forms of social inequity in our society and our personal responsibilities to kind of right-size that. Um, this led us to invite guests to share their honest experiences and learnings And then we hope these conversations will really enlighten our listeners and even our viewers and even our guests, as we all continue on this journey towards social justice. So we're glad to be here again for another episode. And with that, John, who do we have today as our guest?
2: Well, I'm really delighted to introduce everybody to Andrew Marinus. Um, Andrew is the um, Special Projects Coordinator for the athletic department at Vanderbilt University. And you might be wondering, well, what does that have to do with racial and social justice? Well, you'll see in a minute, Andrew's a 92 graduate of Vanderbilt, uh, majored in American history. Um, uh, he's had, uh, had some years as the media relations uh, person for the athletic department, um, had a stint with major league baseball with the Tampa Bay, uh, then the Devil Rays, I guess they were, right?
0: That's right, they um, were back
2: then. Right, and, and uh, has, has had experience in a PR firm, but for the fa- past several years, he's he's been back at Vanderbilt. And um, uh, Andrew has written uh, two books that are directly uh, important to our discussion of racial and social justice, uh, one of which we're going to dive into pretty deeply today, I hope, um, called Strong Inside, uh, Perry Wallace and the collision of race and sports in the South. Mm. Uh, but the other one is also uh, equally uh, compelling, I believe, and I'm on my reading list and that uh, and, and, and I would say it's about baseball. So I, I gave a real, real deference to my colleague Kiva, who's a basketball <laughs> guy by by picking uh, Perry Wallace story yeah. to, to talk about today. But but uh, he also wrote Singled Out, which is a story of Glenn Burke, who. Um, Uh, was the inventor of the high five, uh, but that's not what the story is about. The story is about him being the first uh, uh, gay, um, uh, first man to come out as a gay in in Major League Baseball at the Dodgers. Um, So uh, uh, by way of further introduction, um, this is particularly interesting to me for a number of reasons today. One is that uh, I was introduced to Andrew by my son, Uh, Tyler, who's also a sports journalist, and uh, they both uh, share the um, uh, experience of having uh, been to Vanderbilt, and both were Fred Russell Grantland Rice scholars, uh, which was very important to both of their careers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Andrew. Secondly, uh, the story that Andrew tells about Perry Wallace takes place in the middle of the 60s, the heart of the 60s, Uh, I graduated from college in 1968, right in the middle of this story. So I experienced in the North, some of the same things. uh, And I just was like a visit back with more knowledge about some things that were going on that I hadn't known about. And I think for for folks listening who are in that age range, you're going to find it special. And then I love sports. And, um, and, but this is a book that's far deeper than sports. Uh, It covers Mm -hmm. Uh, what was happening in the South and racial relations and across the country? It's a it's a story about Vanderbilt and its coming of age as the Harvard of the South. It's a it's a uh, it's a story about leadership. Uh, I, I it has so many implications to it, uh, and of course, uh, the, the story about this 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 unbelievable athlete uh, is is so compelling. And then finally, the scholarship behind it, uh, Andrew, took eight years, uh, four years to research this mm-hmm. book. There are 25 pages of notes in the back <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to evidence that, uh, and then four years to write it. So, uh, and, it, and it it paid off, Andrew. So um, thanks for joining us. Sorry for that long introduction, but I know <laughs> it's necessary. And, and uh, let me just start off by asking you to... Um, uh, we do this with almost all of our guests. Take us back to growing up. Uh, how did how did it? What's the story about how you got to be interested in this in this subject of of race relations, uh, starting with your your boyhood? Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Kiva. This is really a pleasure to be with you. And thank you for mentioning your son Tyler. Also, I'm a big fan of his. And when you were mentioning all the K's at the beginning. I was thinking of his book. <laughs> with a, no,
2: right. A right another yeah. <laughs>
0: good, good point. Yeah. Um, and so my way into being interested in um, race really starts with my interest in sports. Um, and so uh, I was born in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, my dad was a big baseball fan. He still is. My grandfather was a huge Milwaukee Braves and, uh, you know, fan himself. And so I was introduced to sort of um, baseball at an early age. I started collecting cards when I was five years old. I, I know Tyler used to write his own you know, newspaper when he was a kid. I had a sports magazine that I started when I was 13 years old. All right. Um, we moved to uh, Texas when I was in high school. And as you mentioned, came to Vandy on the Grantland Rice Scholarship. There was just a poster on the wall of my high school, Austin High that was advertising that scholarship. Uh, And I was the sports editor and played baseball at my high school. And um, so I came to Vanderbilt. And my sophomore year, there was an article in the uh, newspaper about this man, Perry Wallace, being invited back to campus for the first time in almost 20 years since he had graduated. And Perry, I didn't know anything about him at the time. But, you know, he was the Jackie Robinson figure of the SEC. He was the First black basketball player at Vanderbilt, but the first black athlete in the entire conference that had played a whole four year career in any sport. I was, uh, as you mentioned, majoring in history. I was taking a black history class. Uh, race had always been something that um, my family had talked about. My grandfather served in World War II. Um, white, obviously, but he was uh, with an all black unit in the Pacific And he came back from World War II with a tremendous admiration for the guys that he had served in World War II with, you know? And I think that really influenced the rest of his life. My grandparents went to see um, Jackie Robinson play at Wrigley Field. They drove from Detroit to Chicago, you know, to see that um, history made. Um, Grandfather was a newspaper editor in Wisconsin and hired the first black reporters at this newspaper, you know? And so that was something that was really important to him was passed along to, to my father and then, um, passed along to me as well. So when I was at this school, uh, in the South, in the sec, I don't think my parents were too excited that I was going to an sec school based on what they knew about, uh, the South. And I don't consider natural, the deep South, but it's certainly close and, um, learned about Perry Wallace. That was something that really grabbed my attention. I was like, wait a minute, we had this uh, pioneer at my school, you know, let me learn more about that. And so, I wanted to write a paper about him for this uh, black history course that I was taking and was concerned that my professor would say, no, you know, we don't write about athletes or basketball in college. You know, that's not serious enough academics, but thankfully uh, Dr. Yolette Jones said, great. If that's what you want to do, go for it. And so I called Perry from my dorm and interviewed him for two hours about his experience Uh, desegregating SEC basketball and really at that point as a 19 year old I was more interested in the athletic side of it you know like what was it like to go down to Ole Miss and play a basketball game and how were you treated by the fans and your teammates and it wasn't until I started working on the book about Perry 17 years later that I was mature enough or had a little bit smarter and understood that there was a lot more to this than just a basketball story you know and that his story really was interesting if you place it within the context of the civil rights movement you know and what was it like um, to be a a black kid in Nashville in the 50s and 60s uh told that you know we don't want you on this campus stay away you're not you know Vanderbilt Vanderbilt didn't have any black students at all until Perry was 16 years old you know and then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden because you're a great basketball player and Uh, You're a great student. This school that says they they don't want anything to do with you is recruiting you, you know, Um, and you're going to have to travel to Alabama a few years after George Wallace is standing in the schoolhouse door, and travel to the Mississippi a few years after James Meredith um, and the riots that accompanied his admission to Ole Miss. And you're going to be down there as the only black person in the entire gym playing in these basketball games. And what does that take out of Mm. of a pioneer, you know, physically and mentally? And so d- diving into the full story of the history and the surrounding context and um, looking at it from, from Perry's perspective, I was so fortunate to have, like you say, eight years to work on this book. At times that felt like forever and that I wasn't getting the job done. I had a lot of guilt about spending so much time on the book. But what it allowed me to do is to get to know Perry that much better. You know, he, he was he's not alive now, but he was the entire time I was working on the book and when the book came out. And so had a chance to go back to him many, many times to do more interviews, you know, to came down to Nashville, we, we drove around town. And I got to see Nashville of the 1960s, you know, through his eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know this is a roundabout way of answering your question, but it really, my in, initial interest came uh, purely by loving sports and identifying a sports figure that um, had a lot more to him uh, and could teach a lot about race and racism. And that's what it's inspired me to stay interested and in, to continue on that path. Today,
2: so when you when you called him um, as a, hus, a reporter for the Hustler, um,
0: Vanderbilt Hustler student newspaper, right? Student <laughs> not newspaper, the, not, not, the, uh, not right. the other
1: one. Got to get yeah. There. Yeah. make sure we clarify. Make sure <laughs> right. we clarify that. <laughs> right. Thank <laughs> you, Kevin.
2: Uh, he, he was he a law professor by that time?
1: Yes, at that time he was
0: a uh, um, law professor at the University of Baltimore. Uh, he was mm-hmm. the first black tenured law professor there. He later became a professor at American University Law right. School, which is where he was for 20 plus years. This gives me a chance to tell a Philly story with you Philadelphia guys. So when Perry graduated from Vanderbilt, um, he was drafted by the 76ers wow. and uh, the coach at that time was Dr. Jack Ramsey mm-hmm. and uh, Perry and uh, Coach Ramsey got along great, both, you know, really smart guys with a lot of interest beyond basketball. Um there was a really veteran uh, laden team in the early seventies for the Sixers. So Perry didn't make the team, but uh, Dr. Jack wanted to keep him around. And so he helped him land us a roster spot on the uh, Wilmington blue bombers nearby Wilmington, Delaware. And um, during the season, this type of guy, Perry Wallace was so so much more than just an athlete. He was teaching high school math at uh, Bartram high school in Philadelphia at the same time that he was, trying to make it as a semi-pro basketball player. And he also served wow. as a volunteer assistant coach on the basketball team at Bartram. And there was a great player on the team that Perry identified that he thought really had a future in basketball, whose name was Joe Bryant and uh, Jelly oh, yeah. Bryant. So Perry coached Kobe's dad Kobe's uh, when dad. Kobe's dad wow. was wow. in high school.
2: How Look at that? that. That is a That's cool. So I, I'd like you to talk about the the distinguishing athletic talent that he developed, Perry developed as a teenager, Hmm. his leaping ability and dunking. And then talk about the reaction of the SEC going into his sophomore year when he was now going to be on the varsity, uh, because I think it's a good, it's, it's a really interesting contrast about, it's the story of the dunk and it's one of the themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And Perry mm-hmm. would call the dunk um, his freedom song, you That's know, right. and that was his way of expressing freedom and artistry, uh, improvisation in a culture that was trying to restrict him and other uh, black people in any way possible. You know, so the dunk meant a lot more to him than just a move on a basketball court. Um, but yeah, he he worked on his legs and a lot of people will dismiss uh, an athletic uh, player as like they were born with it, you know, but uh, Perry worked really hard uh, physically um, to develop the ability to dunk. And by the time he was a junior and senior in high school, he was the the best dunker and most acrobatic dunker on a team where every single player on the Pearl High basketball team could dunk, you know, even the shortest point guard. And, and that was out. their
2: routine. That yeah. was their pregame routine. You could just, you could just vision uh, folks, I hope you read this book because he, he Andrew takes you there. You could just see their pregame warmups.
0: Mm. I, I loved writing about that. Yeah, these Pearl High Tigers was, would come out yeah. and they would play sweet Georgia Brown in their little gym, you know, and they'd all come out and just one after another, dunk it, dunk it, dunk it, and save Perry for the last with the most dramatic dunk. Um, his team was a great team. They, it wasn't like they just dunked. They, they won the state championship, uh, his sophomore year and his junior year and his senior year. And they went undefeated his senior year, which was the first time in Tennessee that black schools and white schools actually played against each other. They had separate tournaments prior to that. Um, and so Perry was known as, as a, as a great leaper. You could, you could pull a quarter off the top of the backboard type of, uh, leaper, mm-hmm. Um, back in those days in college basketball, they had freshman teams and varsity teams. You know, it wasn't one and done. You couldn't even play varsity as a freshman. And so um, Perry's uh, freshman year, there's a game at Kentucky. And this would have been the year after Kentucky lost to Texas Western in the famous Glory Road uh, National Championship game. And on that Texas Western team, there was a player named David Big Daddy Latin, mm. Um who early in that championship game had dunked uh, over Pat Riley. And that uh, set Adolph Rupp, the Kentucky coach, off this, this embarrassing dunk over Pat Riley. The well, Lakers, out David, Pat Riley? What's the that? Lakers,
1: Pat, the Lakers, yeah. Pat Riley? Yeah. Man,
0: he wow. Rupp. It's amazing to me that, just to get off subject here, the history of basketball can be reduced to so few connections that you had Adolph Rupp who played at Kansas, where James Naismith, the inventor of basketball, had been the head coach. Adolf Rupp then coaches Pat Riley, who brings LeBron James, like, to the Miami Heat. So you go from Naismith to LeBron yeah. James with like, yeah. two people. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, anyway, so Big Daddy Latin, who had dunked it over Pat Riley, had started his college career in Nashville very briefly at Tennessee State, where Perry Wallace would play in pickup games with him when Perry was in high school. And Perry develops a dunk is similar in style to, to uh, David Latin. So Perry's uh, freshman year, he plays against Kentucky. This is the year after the glory road game. Vandy goes up to Kentucky and Perry is all of a sudden he's the second coming of David Latin. He dunks it over Dan Issel. And he mm. said that as he ran down the court, uh, he looked and he saw this old man going crazy on the sideline. And it was Adolf Rupp who again, did not appreciate being dunked on, uh, especially by a black player. And so Adolph Rupp was very influential in the college basketball rules um, committee. He had been the, the head of the rules committee. And so the next offseason before Perry Wallace is about to join the Vanderbilt varsity team and is going to play two games a year against the Kentucky varsity, the slam dunk is outlawed in college basketball.
1: Mm-hmm. And at the
0: time, it was known as the Cinder rule. Uh, as if it was entirely aimed at Lou Alcindor, Kareem mm-hmm. Abdul-Jabbar, oh, yeah. and UCLA in the way that um, he was changing the game. But, you know, I make the case in the book that Kentucky wasn't going to be playing UCLA unless they met in the NCAA tournament, but they were going to be playing Perry a couple times a year. And so I think that Ad- Adolf Rupp um, was thinking of Perry Wallace when he uh, outlawed the slam dunk. But, of course, it was bigger than that, too. And it was really a reaction among uh, white power structure in the game to limit the uh, contributions of these black players who were changing Mm -hmm. the way that uh, basketball was being played at that time. And Perry was symbolic of that. Mm
2: -hmm. From Perry's point, it was his trademark. I mean, it was, it meant a lot to him and you you gave the, the broader context of, of, uh, uh, the team and the Pearl high school and so forth. Kiva, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. Now I was gonna say, I I, I think um, what you just what you just mentioned, Andrew, here about the power structure, and 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 those in power, how um, the policies and the rules can um, be symbolic of the continued oppression, even on the even on the court, even in the game of you know sports, even in sports play, how that can uh, tend to uh, restrict and um, you know um, hinder the skill set and the talents of, of uh, African-American um, um, athletes. There's a book out called The $40 Million Slave. Yeah. I'm not sure you're familiar, but if you read yeah, it, William if, Roden, yeah. Correct, yeah, yeah. So I've read that and it really talks about, and I, I know we won't have time to discuss it here, but it just talks about even in the, you know, how um, the, the $40 million slave is the African-American talent is exhausted until pretty much that that player is not worth anything anymore. And then your I mean, what you're talking about is how the, the other side of the coin is that how the rules was restricting that player from showing all of the talents that mm-hmm. they have. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, to, to have this dichotomous nature of, of those in power is do you want the person? It's all not until that person's talent is able to produce some form of wealth for the team. And, and then we, we, we will release, uh you know, him or her, so to speak, to be able to. Um, give it their best in all and how um, these, you know, like the dunk rule for me was really like a way when I read that it was really like a a way of just keeping quote unquote um, Perry Wallace in his, in his place in society Mm -hmm. back in that time, not to let him, to let him to excel to his full potential. Absolutely. Um, I
0: I was thinking of $40 million slaves as uh, before you mentioned it too, It's exactly. and, And Roden writes about how, you know uh, sports are positioned as this level playing field but how many times has the playing field been tilted against um, black athletes uh, banning the slam dunk is a, a prime example of that and the to kind of close the loop on the dunk and Perry his final game as a senior uh, in 1970 as uh, a game against Mississippi State which is an opponent that means a lot to Perry because of uh, how poorly he was treated in a his first time visiting Starkville, Mississippi, but this is a home game against Mississippi state. And he decides before the game that he's going to dunk it, even though by this point, the dunk is against the rules in college basketball. Yeah. And so the last basket of his college career is an illegal slam dunk. Oh, yeah, And he told me that um, growing up in segregated Nashville, there had been um, these racist laws. They were laws, but they were unjust laws. And in college basketball during his career, there was this rule, but it was an unjust rule, you know, and so yeah. uh, he was making good trouble. You could say like John yeah. Lewis would say. John Lewis, know, yeah, that's
1: right.
0: And dunking the ball and good trouble, um, right. yeah. the refs should have waved it off. You know, it, te- it should have been a technical foul, but they let it go. They counted know? it. That's so right. Perry was proud that that was his uh, form of protest on the way out was this final slam dunk.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. An interesting um, that's cool. comment about the refs letting it count.
1: Mm-hmm. Given
2: the fact that uh not too long ago, a couple of days ago, I just read about the his first visit to Missis to as as a sophomore, Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, and other instances where he was blatantly fouled and injured in in that, you know, severely injured, he had to leave and come back. Um and, and the, the refs didn't call. No calls. Yeah. No calls, yeah.
0: you know. so Yeah, no. Well, yeah, you're right. It was unusual in terms of his treatment by the refs that they let it go in that last game. Would you want me to tell the old Miss story? Um,
2: sure, yeah. It's a great story. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So um, Perry's freshman year, again, on the freshman team, uh, University of Mississippi canceled its games against Vanderbilt rather than play against a team with a black player. And so it's not until um, his sophomore year that he becomes the first black player to play a game at um, Oxford against Ole Miss. And in the first half of the game, he takes an elbow, intentional elbow to the face and uh, he's, he's bleeding. His nose is bleeding. Um, he's dizzy. He can't see out of one of his eyes. Referees don't even call a foul uh, don't even whistle a stop, uh, to the game. And so it's not until the first dead ball that the student manager who I interviewed, um, was able to come out onto the court to help Perry. And he said that he was walking him across the court to the locker room to get a bag of ice. And as they walked across the court, the crowd, the Mississippi crowd stood and cheered the fact that Perry was injured. And as they got close to the tunnel, to the door, to lead to the locker room, they both felt this, um, wetness on their back and they were getting cokes dumped on them and being spit on. Um, But Perry actually had a really interesting thing to say about this um, moment in his career. He said that the most difficult and disheartening thing was actually not what I just described, but what happened at halftime. And he said, he sat on a training table in the locker room with this bag of ice and there's a clock in the locker room that lets the team know when it's time to go back on the court to start the second half. And as that clock hit zero, everybody uh, associated with his team ran back on the court, all the players, the coaches, the managers, the trainer, and they left Perry back in there by himself. And he knew that he was going to have to walk back into this hostile environment alone. Uh, And that it really showed that there was um, a lack of empathy and understanding by all those uh, who supposedly were his his team, you know, and that if they had that bit of empathy, they would have walked with him and and shown the crowd that they had their teammates back. And it was, so it was at that moment that he realized that this pioneering experiment was a a solitary, uh, experience for him. And he talks about the um, different ways that we can all treat each other. And he said, you can be treated well by other people. You can be treated poorly by other people, or you could not be treated at all. Uh You know, he said that applies to any one of us every day of our lives. And people would assume that that, uh, being treated poorly was the most difficult part of his experience. You know, the way those Mississippi fans treated him, but he said actually the most difficult part was the idea of not being treated at all. Mm. And so you could see that his teammates, um, you know, leaving him in the locker room is an example of that, or the way that he felt on his own campus quite a bit where he felt very isolated and lonely and not included in the social life of the university. And that was long four years of isolation that he said was the most difficult part of his experience.
2: And,
1: uh, you know, I I, I think the title of your book is just so, uh, so appropriate, strong inside, because as I I listen to you, Andrew, talk about some of uh, some of his experiences, (laughs) you know, as a social worker, one of the things I try to try to connect is the traumatic experiences that racism creates uh, and within the individual and just hearing that i hear a, a couple of things i hear abandonment i hear rejection i hear isolation and all of those things that he experienced at, at as a result of you know the times that he was living you know living in the race the racism that existed at during that time and despite all of that he was still able to you know to persevere and this really speaks to that whole resiliency threshold that i think um you know social injustices and racism uh, has, um, you know, served as a byproduct for those who are able to endure these type of behaviors and atrocities in our society and still make it to be successful. We have to really look at their ability to, you know, overcome these traumatic experiences. Because I couldn't, Mm. I mean, I couldn't imagine, I've I've been, I've I've experienced discrimination, but not to that degree. And I'm not sure how I would have responded to, you know, to, you know, to that type of behavior um, by my teammates, by those who were supposed to, like you said, have my back to just walk out and leave me, you know, as we would say when I was growing up, leave me hanging, so the hanging, right, right. Yeah, the kind of weather and, you know, to no solidarity was shown, uh, yet he was still able to persevere. So I think I just wanted to, to comment on that to speak to your title about uh, the book being tight, being strong inside, because it, in my opinion, it takes a lot of strength to be able to
0: do. Well, thank you, yeah, and it, you know, um, just sort of that underlying uh, trauma that you mentioned and people not really acknowledging that and him being expected to produce on the court like anyone else, right, or, right. or produce yeah. in the classroom uh, That's right. as if none of that w- was happening. You know, and there's an intended double meaning with the title too, he was a center, you know, so oh, sure. he was a strong inside you know, right. yeah yeah mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, and one thing I've been picking up lately and listening to different speakers is this, um, you know, not necessarily, uh, or understanding what the, what, when you say someone is strong, what that means and, and, and not letting, uh, others off the hook, you know, and um, yeah. who are making someone have to be strong, you know, yeah. he shouldn't have had to have been that strong, uh, you know, all the time, but Perry was an incredibly strong person. Um, he always persevered. He was, he was really proud that, um, that this experience didn't, really ruin him, you know, um, Mm -hmm. he was proud that he continued with his education, went to Columbia University Law School and became an attorney for the Justice Department and professor when he said there is a very fine line between making it and not making it, you know, out of that experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mentally, even living, you know, the the first Black player at Auburn University uh, that was the only Black player that Perry played against his whole career was named Henry Harris, there's a great book about him called remember Henry Harris and Harris um, died by suicide a few years after leaving Auburn. And I think Perry could understand uh, the connections there and how that could have easily been him. Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, that, that strength, I think it came from Perry's, uh, his family, you know, Uh, he came from a really strong family, his parents and his sisters. I think it came from his understanding of history. You know, he was someone that that read a lot. And, um, he, he knew what Jackie Robinson's experience had been like. He, he read, uh, Walter White, the NAACP, uh, president, his sort of accounts of of life in the South before Perry came along, um, came from his faith. Uh, his mom would tell him to put on the full armor of God and that's what will protect you in, in certain situations. It also came from his, um, uh, He he understood there are a lot of people counting on him to succeed. He did not want to let them down, but he also understood there are a lot of people that wanted him to fail, and he he didn't want to satisfy those people either. Um, So so many forces, you know, that were healthy and maybe some that weren't healthy, but that were keeping Perry going and that allowed him to remain strong in all these situations. Go
2: ahead. Yeah, I want to pick up on you. You've given some good examples of how um, both blatantly and outwardly and then subtly white people impacted uh, him because of their racism but um and 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 a stark example so here's a guy who's a who's an intellect he was you know the the top of his class uh became a law professor as a as a as a yeah, and a um he was he was a really smart intellectually oriented guy um, his first encounter with his English teacher. Here's a guy who's coming to Vanderbilt largely because of it's its, uh, not just because of basketball, but but part of his decision was because of the excellence that he expected and the first encounter with that English teacher. Could you talk Mm -hmm. about that? But also then then some encounters with white people who actually did empathize and help him. Cause there's some good examples of that too. There's two sides to this coin.
0: Yeah. yeah so, um, and I'll, I'll tell a church story too, that relates, it's very similar to the English class story. So when Perry uh, was recruited to Vanderbilt, the player that showed him around was named Clyde Lee, who was a white player who went on to play in the NBA for uh, 10 years. And, um, he was, uh, from Nashville, just like Perry, had grown up in the church of Christ, just like Perry, but, uh, different churches, segregated churches. When Clyde Lee showed Perry around the campus, he said, here's the university church of Christ. It's right across the street from school. This is where you should go. Um, when you arrive here and it was a white church, but, um, Perry gave it a shot. He said, this is what pioneering was all about. You know, it was doing these new things. And so he arrived on campus a month before school started to get acclimated and he starts going to this church. And for the first three Sundays he, he goes and he sits in the back and, um, He's he's left alone or ignored, you know, depending how you want to look at it. And the fourth week that he walks in, some older members of the church pull him aside and they say, Perry, you can't keep coming here. Um, There's members of the church that say they'll write the church out of their wills if we, quote unquote, allow you to keep uh, coming to our church and you have to leave right now. And so this place that has recruited him before his first day of class, he's already been kicked out of church of all places Then, as you mentioned, um, his English class, and I believe this specific anecdote actually happened to his friend, Walter Murray, who had been the salutatorian at Pearl High School with Perry, Mm -hmm. but um, could have just as easily happened to Perry is that the professor greeted him by saying, so I see they've let the N words in after all. And that's a professor directing that comment Mm. uh, to a student on the first day of class. Other black students that interviewed for the book talked about how they would walk into a classroom and look around and notice that none of their white classmates would sit in the same row with them or even in the row behind them. Um, Perry talked about uh, he was an engineering student. He talked about some of the science classes he took where you would walk in and take a seat at a stool. And whoever sat next to you would be your lab partner for that day. And, you know, what if you're the first student to walk in and you say you're seated there and you watch all the other students walk in the classroom and nobody chooses to sit next to you. And so those were sort of the the daily Mm -hmm. Some cases, uh, I wouldn't exactly call them microaggressions, they're a little bigger than that, but it they, they wasn't someone you know in, in your face necessarily like the English teacher was, but just everyday existence on the campus, and the, again, this sense of isolation and um and loneliness that he felt uh, in the classroom in his dormitory. And he was really as much of a pioneer just existing on the campus as he was as a basketball player,
1: mm. and yet. He still managed to go to Columbia University and become a law professor. So yeah. I think if we if we can just imagine if we was to able to take a huge vacuum and just suck all of that segregation, all of that discrimination, all of that oppression out of this young man's life, how much further he could have went in society. And I think you know these societal barriers um, that that tends to attempt to um, derail the success, and since since we're talking about Christianity, that God has already ordained for his life, it's not gonna, if if God has already ordained him to be successful, it's gonna happen. And he talks about how segregation actually helped him by going to Pearl High High School. As a result of segregation, it allowed him to go to an all-black school where there was all-black teachers. Mm -hmm. And I shared this with John, that was a blessing for him because, for you know, in my experience, I didn't see a teacher that looked like me until I was in college, like my mm-hmm. almost in high school and college. For him, he was around, you know, educators that looked like him, that cared about him. So I think that whole cultivation of, uh, of his of who he was from from that standpoint and being educated from people who looked like him, really, in addition to his parents and the values that his parents instilled in him, really uh, built the foundation for him to become an overcomer. Uh, and I just think, um, you know, of all the things that he was faced with, if we could just remove all those barriers, one can only just imagine, he probably more than just Duncan at age 12, just how, how much further he would have uh, been able to, uh, excel in society. Um, if those barriers were not non-existing.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting point about Pearl high school, you know, and, you know, uh, the assumption that a, a desegregated school would automatically be a better environment, right? Like that, yeah. it, it wasn't the case. Um, so an irony of segregation is that Perry was able to go to this school. That was a, a great school with professors, like you say, who were invested in his success, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, because of segregation, what Perry would say is that the, um, the most talented, smartest African-American uh, adults in town were teachers at Pearl High School, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because they were limited in their job opportunities elsewhere. Um, but they were pouring themselves into this generation of students like Perry. And Perry said that as a kid coming along in the mid to late 60s, he felt the country changing in certain ways. Uh, he felt for the better, you know, um, that he, he watched the lunch counter sit-ins take place in Nashville. Uh, he started high school a week after MLK's I have a dream speech, he's in high school for the passage of the voting rights and the Civil Rights Act. And so he said he felt like there were opportunities coming and these teachers who had been denied opportunities themselves were giving of themselves to prepare Perry and his classmates for what was coming next, you know, and then he arrives at Vanderbilt and there is this uh, racist assumption that because he had come from an all black high school, that it must not have been a very good school, you know. Yeah. And um, in fact, the opposite was true. And he was really well prepared academically for Vanderbilt and he enjoyed proving people wrong. Yeah,
1: I was I was talking with John about that and how, you know, I thought I always like to make similarities and look into, you know, so how Pearl High School may have been. I'm not sure it may have been the foundation for HBCUs, like historically black community colleges and universities, how. You know, the comparison to, to HBCUs, it's to Ivy League schools, like if you're coming from an HBCU, you may not be as, you know, per, but there's a lot of uh, successful uh, people of color that came out of HBCUs that are doing uh, great things in this country. So um, you're, 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 uh, yeah. you're, your comment about, you know, the thought that just because he came from an all black um, high school, he may not be able to compete um, at Vanderbilt was, was uh, a misnomer.
0: Absolutely. And Nashville had a strong HBCU uh, community also with uh, Fisk University and Tennessee yes, yes. State yep. University, which is where a lot of his teachers had gone to college. It's where his yep. sisters had gone. And in fact, his sister, uh, Jesse, was really hoping that he would go to school at an HBCU. She didn't want him to have to deal with all the stuff that came along with, you know, integrating a basketball team in a, in a whole basketball conference.
2: I wanted to go back to your comment about his parents and their influence. And um, I have a question about your parent, your father, and uh, you talked about his being baseball fan. Uh, for those of you who don't haven't figured it out, uh, Andrew's father is also a noted author, um, and um, I just loved his book about Vince Lombardi. But Tyler pestered me to read his book about Roberto Clemente, and what i what I'm wondering about is. Did his? I'm not sure about the sequencing of the writing of the of his book on Roberto Clemente versus your book, but did did he influence you in 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 writing this book uh, by his uh, just brilliant analysis of what Roberto Clemente went through uh, as a man of color in a in a, an elite sport? Was there did you talk about? I mean, how, how did was there a really is there a relationship between his book and your book?
0: I wouldn't say that there's a relationship between specific books. Um, but so my dad is, his name's David Marinus. He is a much more accomplished author than I am. He's written, I think, 13 or 14 books. He's won a couple Pulitzers, you know, like, so I, I cannot compete in terms of uh, writing in my own dinner well, table. You're, you know, but, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that his biggest influence on me as a writer was just uh, like a lifelong influence. You know, like as a kid, I was reading uh, the Washington post, like front page. I probably not a lot of kids did that, you know, but it was my dad's article or the, his friends that were coming to our house. It was their stories, you know? So I felt like a connection to a good newspaper, uh, from an early age. Um, again, he has always sort of been interested in teaching lessons on race. Like he would teach me root against the Red Sox because they were the last team to integrate, you know, (laughs) um, things like that. So that was a part of my upbringing. And then, um, I learned everything about writing by just reading his, his work. Mm -hmm. He didn't start writing books until after I graduated from college. So I wasn't necessarily reading his books. I was reading his articles. Um, Mm -hmm. His first book came out in, I think 93 or 94. It was a biography of Bill Clinton. Um, But I would say that just his overall sensibilities uh, and his writing style kind of seeped into me (laughs) through osmosis, you know, Um, when I was actually writing the book, I would send chapters back, uh, printed out chapters to my parents just for them to read as Mm -hmm. I was working on it. And I would get a package back in the mail with edits from my mom, uh, who's a great editor. She reads his stuff, too, but not from him. You know, and as much as I appreciated what my mom was telling me, I was like, you know, you're married to someone who's written a lot of books. (laughs) (laughs) It'd really be helpful to hear from him, too. And I never did and I was getting frustrated my dad and I've joked about this, but I think his, his reasoning was he was since, especially because it was my first book that I would have a sense that I, I really did it uh, without his fingerprints all over it. And so I was grateful for that in the end.
2: Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I also wanted to go back to something I mentioned during the lead in um, this theme of leadership. It's something that I'm just very interested in. Perry Wallace, became a leader. And 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 I observed that he he went to all the major events in the so he 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 observed what was happening around him in civil rights and so forth. But but the part that really grabbed me and made me start thinking of this was um you're talking about um Arthur Ashe, Bill Russell and um uh Muhammad Ali. Uh, he will tell you that I, you know, I often talk about Muhammad Ali and Muhammad Ali was, was uh, in my family. uh, My sons call me the greatest because I make them call me the greatest because, because of Muhammad Ali, you know, not because I'm the greatest, but because I, that was something that started really early. So that's, that's just a personal reason why it grabbed me. But, but the different uh, leadership styles that those three elite, athletes, elite citizens, I'll say, beyond athletic, Uh, they transcended athletics, as did Perry. Um, Could you talk about that and and how it influenced him and and how he became a leadership? And there are other leadership aspects as well, uh, particularly Chancellor Hurd, leadership, and and, um, Chaplain Asbury, and and his friend that you mentioned earlier, who who, um, was really a born politician, um, he exercised it. So just talk a little bit about the leadership theme there.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point that you brought up. I mean, it's not like necessarily, uh, there's so many books that executives and business people read on leadership. Um, and I don't, this isn't one of those types of books, but I do think that it does sort of express a lot of uh, leadership lessons, leadership hmm. styles. Um, you mentioned a lot of names. So Alexander Heard was the chancellor at Vanderbilt who was brought in, um. To really open up the university in the 60s uh, to become a more progressive place and the stroke of leadership that that he showed was um, he knew part of that was changing things on the campus but part of that was also changing perception of the university around the country and he knew that for better or worse people paid a lot of attention to sports and so he, he thought that one way he could change the uh, perception of Vanderbilt was by desegregating the SEC at Vanderbilt and so he called the coach into his office and said, you know, you, we have black undergraduates now, so you, you can recruit a black player. And in fact, I would like you to, you know, and he he put that out there that I would like you to, and the coach took him up on it, which that same conversation was happening at the university of Kentucky and Adolph Rupp really resisted it. But Roy Skinner, the coach at Vanderbilt um, embraced it. Um, Skinner leadership. uh, He was a decent enough man that he recruited Perry and um, wanted him on his team. But didn't really um, understand what was necessary as Perry's coach to support him, you know, and he, his, his attitude was the best thing he could do for Perry was to treat him like anybody else on the team. But, and that meant like no extra special conversations or, or anything like that. And, but Perry wasn't being treated like anyone else on the team, you know, when teams weren't canceling games against Vanderbilt because some white guy was on the team, you know, or the fans weren't threatening to, to kill other players on the team, and so he was missing an aspect of leadership in terms of his empathy and understanding of uh, how he could support this player that was dealing with other things that other guys weren't. Um, the the other contemporaries of Perry's in the 60s, you know, when he was a, a student at Vanderbilt, Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael came to speak on campus, both of whom sort of represented different uh, leadership styles in terms of how to address civil rights in the United States. You know. Uh, uh, King was considered too conservative by many of Perry's black uh, classmates at the time who were drawn to uh, Carmichael's more outspoken um, rhetoric. Um, people like Arthur Ashe, uh, who handled things in a way that to some was considered uh, conservative or accommodating, right? as uh, was opposed to Ali, um, you know, who spoke uh, his mind 100% at, at any time, and, and Bill Russell, who was... Um, in some ways a pioneer like Perry, you know, and Perry said that Boston was the most difficult city he ever visited. And this is a guy that played in Starkville, Mississippi in the 1960s, you know, so he really admired what what Russell was going through and Russell was writing about it, you know, at the time, um, and trying to educate people. Um, and so Perry, I think absorbed a little bit of, of all of those leadership styles and sensibilities approaches to trying to change things. Um, some of Perry's classmates at Vanderbilt considered his black classmates considered him too much of a um, of an insider, you know, trying to change things from the inside. Perry would say, "Well, you might be out there being loud, but what are you actually getting done?" You know, so they were having those types of discussions. Um, some of his black classmates from high school called him a sellout or Uncle Tom for even going to Vanderbilt, you know, mm. in their mind, um, mm. he should have gone to an HBCU. And so he was on top of all the pressures that he was receiving from white classmates and professors, administrators at Vanderbilt, it wasn't always a comforting thing to go back to his own neighborhood. And yeah. so the pressures on him were more difficult than I think anybody could imagine at that time.
1: A prophet, yeah. uh, the saying, a prophet is without honor in his own backyard right, resonates yeah. with that. Like, you know, you, you are the you know, you get out and you, you know, you want to come back and be, you, sometimes it's challenging when you do get out, to come back to try to be yourself because you're going to, you, you'll face oppression and disc, uh, interracial discrimination is what you just described there, Andrew. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, the whole thing about leadership is more than, like you said, is more than he talks about this word equalizer, like how yes. um, things were equalized by the teachers that he had um, experienced. Um, and, and, and you talked about the coach Skinner which treated, was, treat, was wanted to treat him equally when equitable distribution or equitable engagement needed to take place because That's right. he was not equal by any means. He was not equal in race and on socioeconomic status, So he could not have been treated just quote unquote, just like any other player. It right. needed to be some extra effort to engage him from an equitable standpoint um, to make him feel welcome. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. of that uh,
0: graphic that about the difference between equality and equity. Have you seen it, where the kids are standing watching a baseball?
2: Yeah, game. yeah, yeah, yeah. That. that's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to mention that. It's uh, that's the, that's the point. And he, and he interestingly, his approach on the court was was a little or his yeah his approach I would say was was different from off the court. He was a more he 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 was very sensitive to not being too aggressive on the court, but was realized, I almost got the impression he had a, He became a reluctant leader, but once he decided that he was gonna be a leader on campus, then he was forceful about it.
0: Yeah, there was a transformation that took place over his career. Yeah. You're right, he, he, uh, I mean, we talked about how he was limited in this rule change about the dunk disappearing, but I think in some ways Perry would admit that he limited himself in certain ways too because um, as a reaction to racism, you know, if he hit a player in the face with an elbow, what was going to happen on the court with uh, all the players and what was going to, what was the fan reaction going to be to that, you know? And so he was, he was conscious. I mean, how, how do you play your very best when all those things are, are on your mm. mind, you know? Yeah, that's right. And that's what he was having to deal with. Um, over the course of his uh, career at Vanderbilt, he decided that, in some cases, he was very, very careful, right? Like So after MLK was assassinated, there was a peaceful march that was going to take place in Nashville that Perry wanted to participate in. But he knew that as a basketball player and as this pioneering basketball player, he was going to be looked at with uh, extra scrutiny no matter what he was doing, you know, and that there were certain people on campus or around town that, uh, I mean, that didn't like King, first of all, right, and, and wouldn't want Perry... Um, participating in this and they would call it a like a a hostile protest when really it was just a peaceful march about someone that had been murdered. And Mm -hmm. so Perry was always thinking several steps ahead and he went down to the athletic department and explained what he was going to do and why he was going to do it. Um, Being put in that position where he had to think several Mm -hmm. steps ahead Mm -hmm. just to do ordinary things, you know, like honor Martin Luther King. Um, By the end of his career, he was um, less concerned, I think, about what people thought. Right. And 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 just felt like I'm just going to do it. This has to get done. And so the day after his last game, he gave an interview to the local paper where he outlined everything that he had been through for four years. And he told me that by giving that interview, he was he he suspected he was writing his ticket out of town. And what he meant was, you know, this is the town he had grown up in where he had been. valedictorian of his high school, three-time state champion, all-SEC basketball player, uh, a great student at Vandy engineering degree, and like all those things that add up to setting yourself up for success in your hometown after your playing days. But simply by telling the truth in this article, the Vanderbilt community, the white community in Nashville wasn't going to want to hear it, and that, he, that they would shoot the messenger, you know. And so that's mm-hmm. what happened after this article came out. Uh, People called him ungrateful. Uh, They said, you know, good riddance, get out of town. And uh, but Perry said he had a moral obligation to tell the truth. And that was a special obligation for a pioneer is that you have to talk about what your experience has been like uh, for the benefit of the people who will come after you, but also for the benefit of the institution itself. And so Perry's thinking about this school and what's best for this university, even as it's not treated him well, you know, and so uh, what a big man it took to be thinking not only about the the black students that would come after him, but trying to improve the school. Um, And, and, you know, just one of many, many reasons why Perry was such a remarkable person. um, And a reason why I was really happy that later in his life and including parts of his life beyond when the book ends, that he ultimately did receive the respect and the love and the admiration from this community that had run him off. Mm. And so Perry uh, way Perry described that, as he said, um, reconciliation without the truth is just acting. And a lot of times a company or a school oh, or a family, that's a
2: great quote. Yeah. yeah
0: Perry was a real poet. <laughs> and um, they, there's this temptation to put out the happy photo op, you know, and say, yep. everything's great now, but have you mm-hmm. really dealt with the truth of how you got in that situation in the first place? And if you haven't, yeah. it's just for show, it's just acting. Yeah. But if the truth yeah. is present, then reconciliation can be really powerful and it can produce uh, knowledge and change and healing. And he felt that because of the way that people had changed at, the, at Vanderbilt, the way, um, uh, you know, more black people in positions of power at the university, a more diverse student body, uh, white administrators and students who actually cared, you know, that things had changed enough mm-hmm. that he felt like it was a real reconciliation. And I was really happy uh, about that for Perry's sake.
1: Yeah yeah i like I like that I like that quote um, it resonates with something that that I teach when I do this di work diversity equity inclusion work with agencies is that we don't want you to be performative in nature mm-hmm. We want you to be progressive and working towards change real change real meaningful change and that quote resonates with with that that you know it's it's, it's easy to be performative and we're just doing this just because. But what's the, where's the real change? Where's the real meaningful change towards social justice? And I think uh, that quote really hit and it really tells about his his sacrificial life that he sacrificed his himself in many ways to make sure that to get to, to for Vanderbilt to be, you know, institutional where it's more inclusive and integrative. So I, I, I just think that's a powerful quote. I, I really like it. And I wanted to I wanted to touch in a little bit because every time I read these type of books, something uh, changes me on the inside. And, I you know, I turn to I tend to grow and learn and about, you know, my own personal views and around this topic. I just wanted to ask you, what did you learn about yourself in writing this book, like about your own views and values on racism and social justice as you, you know, did, went through this, you know, this eight year long period of research and knowing uh, Mr. Wallace and and learning about his experience, how did that impact you personally in terms of uh, this topic on racism mm. and social justice?
0: Uh, I think it had a, um, hopefully a profound impact on me. It was life-changing experience to um, set aside writing the book, but just to spend that much time with a brilliant person like Perry, you know? And every time I interviewed him, I just tried to be like uh, his student, you know, and mm. and just mm. absorb as much as I could of what he had to, um, teach me. Um, not only about his own life, but Perry had a real ability to uh, step outside of himself and look at the world, um, uh, in a bigger context and even see how he was seen by other people, you know? Um, but I think, uh, significantly, like what it did is it taught me there's a difference between, um, just thinking something and actually doing something, you know, and it's not good enough to just, uh, Believe though I I tend to think the 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 right things quote unquote but like it doesn't really do any any good (laughs) you know you got to you've got to act on it and so when I talk to kids and you know I adapted this book uh, as a young readers book for middle school students and I always conclude with a slide that has the word upstander on it and I talk about the difference between being an upstander and a bystander and how important that was in Perry's life when he was at Vanderbilt he was surrounded by a lot of bystanders. Yeah, who were his teammates and classmates that saw or at least should have seen that their friend or or their classmate their teammate was not being treated fairly and yet they chose not to do anything and they said that's not my problem that's his problem you know Mm. Um, and what a difference it would have made if there had been more upstanders in his life and so I, I try to um you know, live that out now and not just write a book about it. But uh, mm-hmm. that's why I've continued to write books that deal with uh, sports and social issues, whether it's uh, anti-Semitism or homophobia or sexism and trying to teach these lessons through sports books aimed at teenagers, you know, um, wow. and get kids interested in reading through sports, but then also um, challenge them with this I- these ideas about how we all uh, treat each other um, using sports, which I think is an accessible way to do it. You know, there might be a mm-hmm. kid in a school who would ordinarily pick up a yeah. book about one of these topics, but they will pick up a book with the basketball player on the cover, you know, that's or right. a baseball player on the cover. And so that's how it's changed me is me thinking that's my way of trying to make the world better is through telling these wow. stories. Some people become politicians or social worker or work, you know, um, in different ways um, on issues. And my way is by writing about them.
2: Wow. Now, that's a uh, great segue, since you mentioned baseball, to Singled Out. And I, I, we're, we're getting a sh- little short on time, and I don't I don't want to miss the opportunity. I love basketball, too, but I really love baseball. Uh, talk to us about that book, uh, a different topic, but similar topic. Uh, how did that evolve? And tell us a little, a little bit about the book.
0: Yeah, so Singled Out is... Um... My most recent book, it's a biography of Glenn Burke, who is an African-American baseball player for the Dodgers and the A's. He's considered the first openly gay major league baseball player. And as you mentioned at the beginning, he's the inventor of the high five. Also, he and Dusty Baker high fived in the last game of the 1977 regular season and the Dodgers coined the term. Um, but that book is, um, you know, it's about uh, homophobia in sports. It's about the how. um Glenn was really robbed of of his career because of who he was and the fact that he uh, would not go along with a bribe that was offered by the Dodgers to uh, cover up his sexuality. Um, it's been a topical point of discussion here recently with some of the, uh, the Dodgers finally honored Glenn at their pride night uh, last week after decades of refusing to really acknowledge his existence and then the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, your son Tyler wrote an article about how they were wearing caps uh, for their Pride Night with the rainbow uh, logo. And some of the players um, refused to wear those caps. And so in some ways, you see some of the same issues that Glenn Burke was dealing with in the 1970s uh, still present uh, in sports, in baseball in particular. But in other ways, things really have, have changed quite a bit, too. Uh, we've seen a number of players come out uh, in other sports. Uh, the fact that the the Dodgers and the Rays and the a's and other teams are really um, promoting their pride activities in such uh, visible ways is a huge sea change from uh, the environment that glenn was in where the Dodgers felt like it would be a public relations disaster if their fans found out there is a gay player on the team and they wouldn't tolerate that and they they shipped him off, you know. So, um, Glenn's story is is inspiring in some ways. It's tragic in others. You know, he was run out of the game, becomes homeless on the streets of San Francisco, and dies uh, of AIDS. But he's a fascinating character. And uh, as a baseball fan, it was a real thrill to interview his teammates like Dusty Baker and Mike Norris and Davey Lopes and yeah. others uh, to work on this book that took place in the. Late 70s, which was really when I was sort of becoming conscious as a mm-hmm. 7, 10-year-old kid um, about baseball.
2: When did he come out?
0: He actually officially came out in 1982. Um, after, to, after, his, after his career. Yeah. He went on the Today Show with Brian Gumbel, and there was an article in Inside Sports Magazine. But mm-hmm. that was official for the public. His teammates knew, uh, going back to his minor league days. Uh, And, uh, you know, Dusty knew when when he was called up with the Dodgers. And yet, um, you know, some people would then and now call call a a gay player in the locker room like a quote-unquote distraction, you know, that would create a distraction. Um, The real distraction on the Dodgers at that time was Lasorda himself, who was inviting Don Rickles and Frank Sinatra and all these celebrities into the locker room before games. Glenn, on the other hand, was the most popular player on the team, uh, Dusty said he kept things loose and light. They loved his uh, his attitude. And when he was traded, um, Don Sutton and Steve Garvey were seen at their lockers crying over the fact that this rookie fourth outfielder was traded. You know, And that shows what uh, charisma and presence Glenn had on that team and how much he was loved by his teammates.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering whether it was like the soldiers would say, I don't if I'm in the foxhole with you and you're fighting with me, I don't care.
0: Yeah, I think there was. A I just do don't that. care. Is that
2: the way the players felt?
0: I think so. That um, they felt like they respected his his heart and his hustle, his playing mm-hmm. ability, right. and just the way he, his personality. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they they didn't really care the way that the management of the team did. There was a real distinction between the way he was treated by his teammates and by by management. Hmm.
2: Interesting. Wow. well, well. There's another one I've got to read. I guess it's, uh, unfortunately, it's about time to wrap this up. Um, I always like to ask this question. So, uh, other than Perry Wallace, <laughs> who, who is your role model in the area of race relations?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of authors that I really admire. Um, I would say Cast by Isabel Wilkerson is one of the best books I've ever read mm. on race. Living here in Nashville, I've had a chance to go down to Montgomery, Alabama, to the Equal Justice Initiative Museum. And Brian Stevenson, um, you may know Just Mercy, his book and the movie based on that. So uh, those are two people. And then also here at Vanderbilt, I'm really fortunate to work for Candace Lee, who is the first uh, black woman athletic director in the Southeastern Conference. And uh, so I'm around her every day, you know, yeah, and nice. uh, yeah, and feel really fortunate that that's the case. Uh, There were two other older figures that were, I think, influential on me. One was Ed Martin, who was a former Negro League baseball player who became a basketball coach at Tennessee State and then a professor at Vanderbilt. When I was a young uh, person just out of school, he would come by and just sit in the office and tell stories, you know, and it was kind of like listening to Perry. But I was hearing stories from someone a generation even older than Perry, you know, and Mm -hmm. – then there was a man named Butch McCord who was another former Negro league baseball player who lived in Nashville and just died um, maybe five or 10 years ago. But he would, again, just, he had stories to tell. And I wanted to hear him, you know, and so I'd go over to his house and he would tell me what it was like playing with cool Papa bell, you know, or sure, uh, wow. other names yeah. that you just, you read about. And um, I think that's just been the thing for me is, is listening. I also I'll throw out one more. It was Buck O'Neill. When I worked for the Tampa Bay Rays, um, I had a chance to meet him twice, once in spring spring training in uh, Sarasota. We played the Reds, and uh, I talked to him on the field there. And then in Kansas City, when the Rays played the Royals, I had lunch with him um, before a game. Wow. And uh, I just think it's really important to seek out those older people with stories to tell Mm -hmm. and soak Mm -hmm. up as much knowledge as you can, but then recognize that. Uh, these issues which sometimes you know talk about civil rights movement as if it's in only in the past yeah when it that's uh, of course so uh not true like we're it's not yeah. only in the past we're living through a lot of the same uh battles right now or they seem Absolutely. to be getting uh so much worse and so that's why i think that you know staying up to date on these contemporary authors um is important and then just day-to-day interactions uh with black people that are part of my life every day
2: Kiva, do you want to? Do you want to, Andrew? Why we? Why we smiled when he said cast?
1: Yeah. So, so John and I, we just have a a really, really great relationship, and I I so, I so appreciate and honor him for his willingness and your willingness too, Andrew, just to sit and listen and engage and talk and learn from each other. And so we, we decided that um, to read cast together. And so we read cast together, and we got a thousand notes, and and, and so we're going to do a special edition to uh, the Race to Justice Social Justice podcast, and just go back and forth on what we've learned and how uh, uh, Isabel Wilkinson's book has transformed us as individuals, and 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 uh, and also our knowledge and and great appreciation of of um, you know the struggles and the history around. Because I just feel like. The the more we keep sweeping history under the carpet, and I know you know that's what that's what s- certain members of society want us to do is like forget about what happened. We just can't because mm-hmm. it's it's resonating today, and so it, it's hard to do that when we have so many atrocities that continue to be displayed uh, every, every single day. I, you know, I'm on a 21 day media fast, media and news mm. fast, and um, I haven't watched the news. I haven't, you know, friends sending me, you know, you know, uh, Instagrams on this and that. Did you hear this? I've been on a 21 day fast of all social media and news platforms because I just want to. Well, I'm really preparing for a public speaking gig on Friday and I want my mental state to be solid. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, I'm analyzing. I'm doing a self-analysis. Do I have as a result of this 21 days, how do I feel psychologically? has my psychological, you know, there's a lot weighing on you when you watch breaking news and you, you see all these different things happening. My sense of hope sometimes can wane when these things happen. Um, so I wanted to end with my question for you, Andrew, is in terms of hope, are you hopeful in light of, you know, all the problems faced in achieving social and racial justice in our society today, particularly, you know, with the heightened Uh, events that have uh, current events that have occurred over the past, you know, 30 to 60 days. What, what, what's your sense of hope around all of this?
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, to be hundred percent honest, there's a lot of times where I'm not that hopeful, you know, Um, and not just related to race, but just about uh, politics, democracy, uh, gun violence, you know, uh, all that. And having two kids, I worry about the, what the world that they're growing up in, you know, Um, and I get, pretty down about it a lot and, uh, discouraged and, but I don't want to be that way, you know? And so then yes. what keeps me hopeful is thinking about people like Perry, who were living in a world that was, um, in many ways, a lot worse, right. And yeah. facing challenges that were a lot more daunting and he didn't give up, <laughs> you know? Yes. And I think that, um, Perry would talk about, uh, Faith in the idea that you know you're working towards something. There's no promise that anything great is going to happen or that what you're working for will come true, but that belief that that it might, you know, and um, and so I, I try to keep that attitude that that I think that Perry would have had, and and mm. he would also say in just a very realistic way, "What's the alternative?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. like why, why 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 would you act like there isn't hope uh, what are you going to do right so right. um keep working you know right. and so I think that uh, your podcast that you have is a great example of of being hopeful you know mm-hmm. and having these conversations to um you know not only influence each other but everybody who listens you know and yeah. I think that at its simplest form it's you know it's changing people right and um maybe it's one person at a time sometimes i think perry had a re- realistic attitude about this he would say that you can't expect everybody to be a superhero not everybody's going to be the first person in line at every march you know yep. um not everyone's going to get involved on every single issue but you can hope to bring people along from where they are at the moment to somewhere better you know in the future and so uh, accept people where they are, but hope and work with them to, to move along. And I think if you have that um, sort of bite-sized uh, view, you, you can overcome this, this grander, maybe loss of hope and, and work on things at a smaller level. Keeps
1: you hopeful. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. That's awesome. Good. I, awesome. I think that's, a, I think that's a, a great place to land the plane. What do you think, John?
2: Yeah, I do too. Thank you very much. Awesome. It's been terrific. Just terrific.
1: Yeah, this has been a yeah. lot of fun for me,
0: too. Thank you so I'm much good. for the invitation. I'm glad. I'm
2: glad. And uh, I don't know when I'm going to get down to Nashville again, but I, I had a <laughs> lot of trips down in Nashville, not just not just when Tyler was in college. I love the place.
0: All right. Yeah, well, I, I, I still have two
2: here. Bluebird Cafe shirts that I wear for, <laughs> for workout shirts, you know. <laughs>
1: awesome.
0: Well, I'll be up in Philadelphia this summer. Um, one of the goals for my family, which is a very self-serving goal but the kids they have bought into it is that we want to take them to every major league baseball stadium before wow. they are out of the house
1: oh, wow. as a That's family.
0: Awesome. And so this summer um, we're going to Baltimore, uh, both New York teams and uh, the Phillies game. So. Wow. Do uh, we'll you in know the game
1: July. yet? Do you know which I'll be on the East coast tour.
0: Yeah. It'll be the East coast tour. I, I'm not, I don't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, John, let me know. You know.
1: Let me know. Let me oh, know. Well. If I'm around, I'll be there. That'd be great. That'd <laughs> be, be great. great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, great. Well, well, thank you all for listening to another Race to Social Justice podcast. Thank you all for watching on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel. We really appreciate that for following us. And please join us again for another courageous conversation on our Race to Social Justice. We'd like to thank our guest, Mr. Andrew Moranis, uh, for his insight and just his powerful uh, contributions to um, social justice and, and being an author of several books and uh, get the book strong inside great read and we appreciate you we look to see you again as we continue this race to social justice thank you for joining us thank you thank you
2: the race to social justice podcast is produced edited and mixed at the dream in austin texas visit the
0: dreamrecordingstudio.com for more info